So here's the, here's the cool thing about preaching on Easter. A, that passage that you read was what, we preached, was what I preached on last year. And I lo- that's like my favorite, favorite Easter passage by far. The cool thing, and I was talking about this with Nate right before we started. Like, the cool thing about preaching on Easter is you have a really easy sermon subject if you're ready. Like, like just, all you have to do is just, just read a few verses, say, he's alive, get everybody to say amen, get really excited, and then just let the music play. And it's really easy. But, and so usually that's what we've done, right? Usually we kind of take a break from whatever it is we've been preaching through and say, we're going to do a very specific sermon just on the resurrection or just on some aspect of what Easter means, and we're going to really highlight that. What's awesome, and I've been so excited about the way this lined up is, we're going to stay in, our, in Matthew. So go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 5, because, because I think the section of Matthew that we're going to get to today fits perfectly with Easter and fits perfectly with the Christ that we are celebrating today. Because what's been happening up to this point is we've kind of been seeing a little bit of Jesus' backstory and where he's coming, and he's now he's got these crowds around him from all of the miraculous things that he's been doing, the people that he's been healing. And now he's sitting down and he's going to teach his, his followers, these large crowds that have gathered around him, and his disciples, those who have said, we're in it with you, we're following you. Right? So, so he's sitting down to teach these people, and he's kind of given them this, this brief glimpse at what it looks like to be a part of the kingdom of heaven. Like, like what being in the kingdom, what, what people that are a part of his kingdom look like. Right? We took a couple weeks going through the Beatitudes where he's saying, this is what it looks like to be one of my followers. And then last week we spent some time saying, what does it look like? What is, it, what is, it, what is the action that we're called to as followers of Christ? We're to, be, we're to be salt, we're to be light. And he kind of gives this picture. Now, and I've been saying this like really definitively, but I think Jesus is going to tell us exactly what we're supposed to do with the whole Old Testament today. Right? Like, like I'm going to solve this whole mystery for us of what do we do with the whole Old Testament after the resurrection? Like, like post-Christ, right? We have, this, we have this idea that, right, like Jesus came, Jesus died, Jesus was resurrected, Jesus enacted this whole new covenant. We can take this whole front two-thirds of our Bible, we can tear it out, we can leave it at home, and we can just bring our New Testaments with us to church on Sunday morning because we've got a whole new deal now. We don't need any of that anymore. And really quickly, when we read today, Jesus is going to say, whatever you do, don't do that. Like, Like all of this stuff that God has said for the first thousands and thousands of years of world history is still really, really important to not only the people that God had called together, Israel, but but all of the people that I'm going to make into my church moving forward. Every single word that I've given up to this point is vital for you. And, and, And if you've been wondering where we stand on that idea here at CRC, I think like the last six, eight months will hopefully communicate that we really value the importance of the Old Testament in the life of our church, right? Because for the whole last, what, 12 weeks or so of the year last year, we went through the whole Old Testament, just kind of at a glance. Let's see what the Old Testament has for us. Let's kind of put the big pieces together and kind of see what God did through the whole Old Testament, through all those thousands of years of history. If you've been coming with us on Sunday nights lately, we've been reading through the Pentateuch. So we started in Genesis and Exodus. Last week, we finished up Leviticus, which I don't need to tell you is a tough read. 
right? If you were here, there were a couple weeks that it's just like, this is uncomfortable. And even more uncomfortable when people choose to testify about whether or not they've obeyed some of these ceremonial laws or not. And it's even worse when they're your mom. Not dad. You were gone. You're off, you're off the hook. Stop. Just stop. But there's some stuff when you read through the Old Testament, you're like, this doesn't matter. Why? Are you saying that we're not supposed to, one of the questions that we kept coming back to, are we not supposed to wear like blended types of material? Is this what you're saying? Like I have to have only cotton on at one time or I can only have, you know, this sort of thing. And Jesus, I think, is going to give us a really simple explanation of what we're supposed to do with everything that God had laid out up to this point, right? And hopefully, hopefully, as, as we tend to do on Easter as the church, hopefully by the end of today, we're going to get to this point where we say, it's Jesus. It's all Jesus. It's always been Jesus. And hopefully we're so excited about the idea of who he is and what he's done for us that we're just left standing in awe at how perfectly God has worked together every step along the way to culminate in this momentous day that we celebrate Christ's resurrection. So let's go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to pick up in verse 17, and we're going to read through verse 20. And Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay. What's interesting is, despite all of the years of tradition and history, all of this time that, that there's been this, this priesthood and, and the priests have been explaining the law and you've had these teachers rise up, these people that have really studied every single thing that Jesus said, and, and all of these different authorities that, that Israel would be used to coming to, to say, you know, explain what this verse means. Explain what God meant when he said this thing. Jesus is very definitively stepping up and saying, I'm going to give you the interpretation for the whole Old Testament right now. He places himself in the place of the greatest and highest authority over, over any of the religious leaders that the people would be looking to. So, so for us, it's like whoever... Whoever the pastor is that you look up to, whoever that great preacher, that great, that great writer, that great theologian, that great professor, whoever that person is, that you're like, this person has it all figured out, I go to them whenever I have a question about how to interpret something. Let Jesus remind you that you should first consult him. First go to him and say, what does this mean? Because he has established himself as the supreme authority on interpreting the Bible. He's the one that gets to say what it means. He's the one who gets to say what we should do with it because he's the one, what we're going to talk about in just a little bit, he is the one who inspired, who wrote it, who put every one of these words 
together for us. And hopefully what we're going to, like I said, see is that all of those things ultimately point to him. It's always been about him. So Jesus is going to immediately counter this idea. This one that we talked about earlier that, that because he's coming and he's teaching about the kingdom of heaven is near, the kingdom of heaven is here. And John was saying before, guys, get ready because Jesus is coming. He's going to bring the kingdom of heaven with him. There was, this, there was this kind of growing assumption that once Jesus got here, once the Messiah was on the scene, that all of this law, all of these things that God had revealed to them all this other time in the past, that all that was going away. And so the first thing that Jesus wants to clarify is, just because I'm here doesn't mean we're getting rid of that. Like, like, don't think that I came to get rid of the law, to get rid of the prophets. And when he says get rid of the law and the prophets... Let me just clarify what he's talking about there. When he says the law, he's talking about the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. When he says the prophets, he says, he says everything else. So the whole Old Testament, all of those books that we read together last year, and all of these books that we're continually reading through together on Sunday night, all of those are still important. I have not come to tell you to tear them out of your Bible and not bring them with you when you come anymore. These things are vital for us. Paul kind of echoes that idea um, in 2 Timothy, he's writing to a young pastor and he's talking about Scripture. And in 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16 and 17, he says, All Scripture is breathed out by God. All being both the Old and the New Testament are, are breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Get that idea of complete in your head, Right? Because what Jesus is saying is that he came and he is completing. He is fulfilling the full vision of what the Old Testament was pointing to. Yes, the Old Testament had a bunch of rules. The Old Testament had a bunch of different things to say about how, how the people of Israel should live and, and all of these very specific callings. But, but every single one of those things, Jesus is saying, I want you to see how each of those things is representative of who God is, what God wants, and how all of that ultimately kind of culminates in his presence here. His coming here is fulfilling the whole Old Testament. We've already kind of seen him answering little pieces of prophecy. Like we've already, we've already kind of talked about when we, went through, when we went through his genealogy and some of these early prophecies about where he would be born and these sorts of things. We've seen specific pieces of the Old Testament being answered in Christ, kind of pointing to him. But what he's trying to say is he's trying to say, you need to take a bigger view of what God has laid out and realize that every single thing that God says ultimately points to Christ. Everything in the Old Testament leads us to Christ. So he is he's completing, and even more so, he's kind of clarifying the Old Testament. I was trying to think, because I think in like, in like movie metaphors... And I don't actually have a good one today. I know, it's shocking, right? Mind blown. Like, I was trying to think, because I was like, it's like all these twist endings. Like, I was trying to think of some of the better twist endings, but, you know, all of them are from, like, really dark movies, and today's not, like, a dark and depressing day. That was really my problem, because I was trying to come up with a happy twist ending, and there aren't a whole lot of, like, really happy twist endings. So if you have a good one, you can come talk to me later. And we can, we can talk about what the director of that movie was trying to convey via the, yeah, anyway. So, but I was trying to think, what's the whole, because, you know, usually when you put a twist at the end of a movie, it's something that you've been teasing along the way. 
you've been pointing to this sort of thing is going to happen. Or if you were really paying attention, you might could have figured out who the real villain was or what was actually going to go on, what was going on behind the scenes the whole time that you were looking at this. And the moment at the end when they kind of hit you with the truth of what was really going on, you know, you kind of say, I have to go back and watch that whole movie again from the beginning, right? I have to go back because now I have this, I have this completely different understanding of what it was that I was watching for the first hour and a half of this film. But because I finally see, oh, this is the point. This is what was happening the whole time. Now, the first hour and a half of this movie makes sense in such a new way. There's such a clearer understanding of what was trying to, of what was actually going on here. That's essentially what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, now that you see me, now that you see all of the things that I'm doing, all of the things that I'm teaching, all of the things that over the next couple of weeks he's going to be clarifying about the Old Testament, he's basically saying, you need to go back, look at the Old Testament and say, what was the real point of this the whole time? And I'm hoping that as we're studying Matthew and as we're, as we're getting a clear picture of who Jesus is and seeing how many different things he answers from the Old Testament, it gives us not a desire to kind of set aside the law and say, well, I'm not under that anymore because he's going to say something very different here in just a second. But instead say, I see the real purpose behind the whole law now. And I see it in a new light and a new understanding. And it means so much more to me now because I see Christ. And I see what he's done. And I see what he's been doing all along throughout history. So verse 18. Jesus says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot. Which, for clarification, those are like the smallest letters in the Greek alphabet, or just like the smallest little tick marks that you would make in writing out the law. Not even the smallest piece of the law will pass until all is accomplished. So he's saying until the final consummation of God's plan, which people could, could very easily take to mean, oh, he's saying now that he's here, we're done with it. And that's where, and that's where a lot of people would say, we don't need the law anymore. Christ came, he died, he was resurrected, Law's done. That's what he was talking about. He was talking about until, until, his, until his work on earth was done, we still needed the law. Now that his work on earth is done, we can, we can set it aside. And that's not what he's saying. He's saying until all is accomplished, until he actually returns to physically be with his church, to rule and reign on this creation, and we are living in a perfected, restored creation. All of those words that he has said are still vital to the life of the church. So let's look at a, few, at a few pieces of the law and just kind of get an idea of what he's talking about. Because, because we, still, we, don't like, we don't like sacrifice animals. Like, it's not like we said, bring your lamb today for Easter. We're going to we'll kill it for you. Like, like, like we don't do that anymore. So, it's like, so how can he say the law hasn't passed away yet, but yet we're not killing lambs, and yet I'm probably wearing some sort of blended material today. Like, like what, what's he saying? What's the point? What he's saying, what, what, what Jesus is going to, and he's going to clarify this more and more over the next couple of weeks, so you have to come back, because you have to keep hearing 
some of these things that he's going to continue to talk about. Because he's going to start taking individual pieces of the law and explaining how we're supposed to apply them even today. But, but take sacrifice, right? Today, we are celebrating his resurrection on the other side of his sacrifice. What he's saying is, look at the purpose behind that law. Why did God say that you were to kill a lamb or a bull or a dove or whatever whenever you committed some sort of sin? Why did he say that? Because the penalty for any sin is death. There is, there is punishment and consequence when we commit some sort of sin. And what he's saying is, all of those sacrifices were just leading up to, because they were inadequate, right? Because we just read about this in Leviticus a couple of weeks ago. They'd have the Day of Atonement where they'd kind of have this big ceremony, and, and they, would, they would slaughter an animal for the sins of the whole people for the next year. And then they'd just do it again the next year. It wasn't like that one sacrifice was good for everything. But, but this side, this side of Christ's sacrifice, we say the purpose of the law still stands. The intent there, the, the necessary shedding of blood on behalf of sins is still required for us to be saved. It's still required for us to be made right with God. The only difference is Christ accomplished that perfectly when he died on the cross. The thing that we remembered just on Friday is the very thing that he's saying, all of those moments were pointing up to this, and now that that is accomplished, it doesn't mean the law changes. It doesn't mean God's intent changes. It just means that part has been completely fulfilled in Christ's coming. So we get to celebrate that we don't have to kill animals anymore because Christ has already allowed himself to be killed on our behalf. So what we have to do now when we look at the law is say, what is the spirit behind the law? Why is that law in place? And has, has Christ's being on earth fulfilled or, or overtaken maybe some of the the physical aspects, the, the ways we play that out, has he kind of overcome some of those things? But, but the spirit, what he's trying to say is the spirit of the law. You're not supposed to say, just set aside the law. Like, like we don't say now, Christ has died for my sins so I can do whatever I want and he's still going to save me. No, because he still says very specifically, follow all of these moral guidelines. All of these ceremonial things still represent what is required for admission into the presence of God. All of the, the spirit behind the whole law is still very valid, and we should not, what he says is, we should not be those who would teach that people should set that aside. We shouldn't think more lightly of the law. In fact, he's saying, you should study the law all the more ferociously so that you can understand what is it that God is saying about himself, or what is it that God intends for his people, what is the spirit behind what God is saying there? Because that is still standing. Because God says, I am the Lord. I don't change. Like he doesn't, his nature is what it is. It's not going to become something different. So yeah, we don't necessarily have to kill a lamb, but that's because God already allowed a lamb to be killed on our behalf. The other thing he says he doesn't want us to do is he doesn't want us to take the little things and make them into big things. And we're going to see more and more of that 
as he interacts more and more with the Pharisees throughout the book of Matthew. But he doesn't want us to... But if we're supposed to, to hold on tightly to the spirit of the law, we shouldn't, we shouldn't increase the weight of the spirit of the law. So if some of these things are, are more lighter, like tithing a portion of your flour whenever you, you grind down your wheat, he's, he's saying, don't make those things a matter of salvation, which, which he talks in just a second about the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, which, which, which the Pharisees would do. They would, they would take, and I'm going to, okay, we're going, we're going like old school Heritage Baptist Church Sunday school class. So what the Pharisees would do, and Andy Andes can probably help me with the motions here. They would take the law, right? And around the law, they would place all of these rules that would keep you from getting anywhere near breaking the law. Thank you. So they would, they would pad the law with all of this to protect themselves from getting anywhere near breaking any one of these rules. But by doing that, they would make their, their rules based around the law, they would make those as important as the law. They would elevate those to like word of God standards. And what Christ is saying is, don't lose sight of what God intends when he gives you the law. Don't, don't overemphasize and don't underemphasize. Just, just, just look at what God intends for you and believe that and follow that. Like, don't overcomplicate this. Don't, don't try to say, well, you still need to tithe this amount. You still need to do this. And you still need to wear this thing on this day. And, well, it says that you should, you should bind the word of God to your forehead. So you should definitely, I was joking about this earlier, I should come in here with, like, a Bible tied on my head, right? Like, he's not saying that we should do that. But we should understand what God intends for us in the law. So we, the church, are to interpret the law as Jesus fulfills it, right? So it, we have to ask ourselves, read, so say Leviticus. This was a conversation we kept having as we were reading through Leviticus. We read it and we say, has Christ fulfilled any part of that? Has Christ made some sort of change to that? Not change to the spirit, but maybe change to the mechanics of how we act according to it. Because on a day like today, when we see all that Christ has accomplished and what all of his work did for us, this idea of fulfillment, this idea of satisfying what God demanded ought to become so powerful and so overwhelming to us that, that we just want to know better how we can, what we can do for him. Like, like what is his heart? What, is his, what are his desires? I want to know what Jesus wants because I want to do that. That's what our goals should be. And then Jesus kind of changed, turns his attention. All this time, he's been talking, like it said at the beginning of chapter 5, to his disciples. So he's been talking to the church, the people that are in there. And then kind of when he gets to verse 20, he kind of shifts his focus a little bit. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So now he's talking to people who aren't in. He's kind of, he's kind of looking up behind the disciples who had come close to him, to the crowds, and saying, I don't want you to think that just strict adherence to these words, these acts that you think you can get by with, are the things that are going to save you. And that hasn't changed. Right? He's saying, he's saying you have to be more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees. So, so basically, you have to be more righteous than 
say, a scribe who was basically like the, the theology professor of the day. They were the guys who, who, would, who would study the word, who would translate the word and, you know, translate the Hebrew into the Greek. And they would, they would study and understand and teach it to other people. And they'd bring others under them and they'd say, I'm going to teach you how to become what I am. They were, they were the theology professors. They were the guys that, that studied this 24-7. They were in this trying to have as much knowledge of what God had said as they could. So he's saying, you have to know more than the smartest religious minds of your day. And you have to be more righteous than the Pharisees, who are this religious group of guys who would get together and say, we are going to be perfect. That's basically their mantra, is we are going to look at the law and we are going to do every single thing. If it says, cast your eyes towards heaven, we're going to walk around looking up even if we walk into something, right? These were the guys who said, we're going to do everything we can to, to live perfectly. And Jesus is saying, not even those guys, through their actions, through their knowledge, through, through the works that they are trying to perform, are righteous enough or, or, or smart enough or well you know, studied enough to earn a spot in heaven. So what's he saying? What's he saying? I think he's saying the same thing that he said at the beginning. The point is not the words. The point is the Spirit. The point is that he has come and he has fulfilled the Spirit of the whole Old Testament. All of these things that these guys are trying to, to get by on via the things that they do or the, or the knowledge that they possess, he's saying they don't need the knowledge, they just need me. He's saying, real transformation doesn't start with, I'm going to do all of these things and eventually it's going to change me on the inside enough that God's going to accept me and God's going to welcome me into his kingdom. He's saying, no, 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 no. If you want to be with God, the change has to come from within. You have to have a new heart first. You have to know me. You have to be changed by me. The work that I have done and fulfilled all of this Old Testament Law, all of this work that I am, I am working out and completing in front of you. You need me. You need Jesus. You need Christ. David understood this. Psalm 51, 16 and 17. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. David's saying, I know that, that all of these things are representative of what's required to have a relationship with you. But I know that, that deep down, it's not just that I would kill an animal that saves me. It's you want my heart. You want my desires. You want my, my identity to be wrapped up in I need you. It's not me. It's not anything that I do. It's not anything that I offer. It's actually only that I step out of the way and say, say, Jesus, you have done all of this. You have fulfilled all of this. Jesus, you are the one who offered yourself. I have nothing to offer. I look to you to fulfill in me what you said you can accomplish. I liked this verse. Hebrews 9, 11 through 14. But when Christ appeared 
as a high priest of the good things that have come. Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? That's it. Like, if these things were good, if sacrificing a bull or a goat or a lamb, if that was good, he's saying, how much more, how much greater, how much better is Jesus and what he has done for us? How much more complete is his work than any work that we could offer? How much greater is his knowledge of what God would have for us than anything that we could get just from studying and trying to get by on our own ability to read a text and interpret it and study it? How much, how much greater is his righteousness when he offers himself as a sacrifice, like it said, without blemish, having not sinned, having done no wrong? How much greater is his righteousness than any righteousness that we could ever hope to attain just by taking some actions and doing some things and trying to look good for God. We would never please Him. We could never be welcomed into the kingdom of heaven if that is how we're hoping to get by. So instead, and especially on a day like today, when we're remembering what it is that He accomplished, again, that word, accomplished, we sang it just a few minutes ago, He has overcome these great things that Jesus has done, these great things that Jesus has fulfilled, right? Get this idea, fulfilled, complete, overcome. He has done all of these great things for us. Why? Because he loves us. Because he wants to be with us. And he wants us to be in his family. He wants us to be sons and daughters of God just like him. He wants us to reap the inheritance that is also due to him. He wants us to get to rule with, alongside him over creation. He wants all of these things for us. But we don't get that if we try to get that. Does that make sense? Like we don't try we don't get that if we're the ones that are trying to earn it, that are trying to to fight for it ourselves. We get that because we look to him and say, we see what you've done. We see what you've accomplished. We see what you have completed. And we, we give everything to you. We let go of all of this control and we say, Jesus, you are so much better than all of this. You are so perfect and so able and so gracious to welcome us in. Let's pray.